Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. You'll remember that if we consider the work of Christ in His church since the time of His resurrection and ascension as a work of the Lord, then it should be studied by all who delight in the works of the Lord. Therefore, I believe we could say that it is the duty and obligation of every Christian to study church history. Verse 3, Full of splendor and majesty is His work, and His righteousness endures forever. He has caused His wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Again, if we believe that the work that Christ has been doing in the church since His ascension is a work of the Lord that should be studied by all who delight in them, then we could also say in verse 4 that God, it is, is through His work that He has preserved and caused men to keep track of it, to write it down, to remember it, so that we can study it. He has caused His wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful, and we would include in that all of Scripture that tells us of His wondrous works. Verse 5, He provides food for those who fear Him. He remembers His covenant forever. He has shown His people the power of His works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. Now when you see that language, the inheritance of the nations, you know we're talking New Covenant language. The Jews would have had no understanding of, of the nations and allowing the nations to take part in what the Lord was doing. And also remember that we as Gentiles are the fruit of that work. We are the byproduct of God's giving the nations to Christ and the expanse of the gospel to the nations. And so as we study our history as a church and our belief, our faith, we are studying these very things. The works of His hands are faithful and just. All His precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to His people. He has commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. As we study the history of our confession, I hope that we would increase in the fear of God, the God who has worked so faithfully and providentially to bring about our salvation. Our, the, the history of the Christian church is our history. And so as we study that and realize the, 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 the providential work of God in all things to bring us about to right where we are here, that should, should well up within us a great fear of this God who works all things according to the counsel of His will. And as he ends there, his praise endures forever. I'm hoping that this study would not just be an exercise in mental knowledge, but it would result and resound to the praise of God, not the praise of Baptists, not the praise of Reformed Baptists, not the praise of a denomination or a confession, but to the praise of God. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we pray that you would... Bless this time and, and help us to pay attention and to learn, to focus, to, again, as we hear these things, that we would just be reminded of your great work, that we would see in every, every era, every age, every year that something happens within the church. It is you preserving and guiding your people and being faithful to your people. And the praise and the honor and the glory belongs to you. And all of this work is so that Christ would have the reward for His suffering, that the gospel would continue to spread, that the truth would continue to be uh, proclaimed among the nations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the first week when we began studying our confession, we looked at the 
historical basis for, or the biblical basis for historical theology. From Scripture, we learn that Christ is, has promised to be with His churches until the end of the age. The Great Commission was a promise to all of His people. I'm with you always, even unto the end of the age. And so Christ is with His churches. Christ, as He is with His churches, speaks in and through His churches. And He does that through offices of men who open the Word and teach and preach the Word. Whether inside the four walls or outside the four walls, He's given His Word to His church. And as His church takes the Scriptures and proclaims the truth of the Scriptures and the Spirit accompanies that, that is literally Christ Himself with His people, with His churches. Then the second week we looked at the fact that God's people all the way back to uh, Deuteronomy, God's people as they have formed themselves or as God has formed them into a collective whole have held to creeds or confessions of faith. And we could say that those creeds or confessions were, were taught and explained and multiplied or, or disseminated by men and, and also mothers, fathers, husbands, wives, leaders in and amongst God's people who would teach the next generation and teach the next generation. As we come outside of the Bible, we see the gathering of learned men, gifts to the church as they establish and re-clarify the truth of Christian doctrine. And so, creeds and confessions are beneficial. They're useful. Again, I, I believe the Scriptures assume creeds and confessions, statements of belief. And creeds and confessions are useful. I gave you last week five uses. They preserve the unity of the church, a local church. They help us to proclaim the truth. They provide clarity so that everyone around us knows exactly what we believe. They promote the study of doctrine and they prevent error from seeping into the church if we have established creeds and confessions that, again, you'll remember the picture. We've got our spray can and we're spraying that, that laser line. You've seen, the, you know, remember the movies where there's a, a, a line that's a, an alarm. It'll trip an alarm. You've seen them and you can't see it until you spray it and they spray it and there the line is... is Illuminated, I guess we could say. That's what creeds and confessions are. They're simply gifts Christ has given to the church coming back to the Scriptures and re-clarifying where that line of biblical truth is. That line never changes. It never moves. But they're re-clarifying that line. The ladies remember, it's like the teasing out of hair. As we, as we begin with the earliest creed, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then we move into... Jesus Christ is Lord. Not only is there only one God, but Jesus Christ is that God. And then we move on to the Apostles' Creed, and then the Nicene Creed, and then the Athanasian Creed, and then the Chalcedonian Statement. All of those we read last week, they get longer and longer and longer. We're not adding to biblical truth. We're just teasing out that hair. And you know when you tease your hair out, it gets big. You're not adding any more hair to it. It's just getting bigger. Same hair teased out. That's what's happening. So now tonight we move into a history of our own confession. Where did our confession come from in that mindset? How did, how did we get it? So our goal tonight is to cover about 180 years of church history in order to properly establish the drafting of our confession in the soil of historic orthodoxy and to show its connection to the roots of the English Reformation and English Puritanism. That's my goal. Now, I would recommend, please, go listen to somebody else explain this. Um, you could just Google it. Baptist history, sermon audio, history of, of the 1689. Um, James Renahan is probably the foremost scholar on, on the history of uh, Reformed Baptists and stuff. And so I would, I would encourage, please... Listen to somebody else do this. I've told many of you I have discovered this week I'm not a historian. This is not my gift. I, I do not intend for this to be uh, like an exposition. I am not going to be bothered at all to have my face 
glued to this paper. I just want you to hear dates, follow events, and think of God. God working in every situation. I'm, as I think of that, I'm reminding of Spurgeon as he began to think, well, why am I a Christian? Well, because of my... I ended up at this church, but why? Because of this. But why were my parents this? Because of this and because of this. And you keep on tracing it back further and further, and you have to stop and say God has worked in every single event, leading us to exactly where we are today. So, before we embark on the history of our confession, there are some relevant historical um, contextual concepts that we have to try to wrap our minds around that are not normal to us. And if this history is going to make sense, we've got to get these ideas in our mind. Some of these were hit on uh, several weeks ago when we talked about the history of the church. The first one is church-state relationships, or we could say state-church relations. In other words, back in this time period, the church and the state, that is the government, the political entities, were not separated like they are. We, we take pride in a separation of church and state. Back in this time period, it was not so. And so, state officials, like a king, were very often subservient to a pope, a church official. Also, church officials, like bishops and priests, were typically, or, or oftentimes, servants of the state. They didn't care about religion. They didn't care about faith. They cared about serving the state and advancing the, uh, the wishes of the, the government. Church-state relations. Keep that in your mind. Secondly, and I've listed all these out because this is what I had to do for me to understand it. Secondly, monarchs and parliament. We have a, a constitutional representative republic. In this time period, they had monarchs and a parliament. Like England now, different. They had a king or a queen who was the monarch, but it wasn't like he just did whatever he wanted to do most of the time. There was also parliament, a group of men gathered together that sort of kept the king in check. King and parliament. So state church relations, monarchs and parliament... And then we also, I think it would help us to understand the difference between the Continental Reformation and the English Reformation. Reform on the continent of Europe. If you're looking at a map, you've got Europe is all big. Okay, and then over here in the water, you've got an island, which is England. At the top of it is Scotland. It's separated from the continent. And the Reformation took place in those different areas in different ways. And on the continent of Europe... The reform happened um, primarily in local cities and regions. In this city, and that city, and that city, and that city, as we will see. Wittenberg, Germany. Geneva, uh, Switzerland. Different spots. And that reform was led by theologians and preachers in churches. They preached, and the people heard the Word of God, and reform began to happen. That's on the continent of Europe. Okay, and then we turn over to the, uh, the island, England, the English Reformation. The English Reformation was national as a, as a whole nation, not local, but national. Why is that? Because the reform took place primarily through mandates of royalty. And reform was directed not by theologians or pastors or preachers, but by politicians. Europe and England... And again, we're establishing our confession, our confessional heritage in the roots of the English Reformation and English Puritanism. So, now I will begin walking through a list of dates. In 1509, what's 1509? Somebody just say it. Does anybody know? There's a king who is crowned and his name was... Henry VIII. Henry VIII, if you study this, everybody talks about Henry VIII. And I racked my brain trying to figure out what is the deal with Henry VIII. In 1509, Henry VIII is crowned king of England. Now to situate that date, 
in our minds with stuff we do typically remember. What happens in 1517? The Reformation started by Luther in Germany begins in 1517. October 31st, 1517, Luther nails his theses on the church door at Wittenberg, Germany, which launches the Reformation in Germany. And so Reformation ideologies and doctrines begin to spread, not in England, but on the continent. That's 1517, so, so Henry was crowned prior to that. In 1525 and into the 1530s, as the Reformation began to spread, in Switzerland there was a man named Huldrych Zwingli. And during this same time period, as the Reformation begins to spread, you remember people are returning to the Scriptures. They're, they're opening up their Bibles. I think it was uh, somewhere around this time King Henry allowed for Bibles to be used by common people. Now, these other guys will know more about that. But anyway, the Reformation is happening because people are reading their Bibles. And during this time, there are some, including Zwingli in Switzerland, who begin to question the topic of baptism and traditional views on baptism. And some of Zwingli's disciples begin to practice what was called re-baptizing. Because they believed, we were baptized as infants in the Roman Catholic Church, but we don't like the Roman Catholic Church anymore. We're protesting, we're reforming, and so our baptisms are not valid. They were, they were, we were baptized by a false church. And so they begin to re-baptize and this re-baptism was called Anabaptism, or these people were called Anabaptists. They believed in believers' baptism. Now the leading men of this movement there in Switzerland were eventually captured and killed before they were allowed to continue to study out the logical uh, outworking of their doctrines and their thinking. In other words, they didn't get very far. All they, as far as they got was pretty much, um, our baptism is no good, we need another one. And so they were re-baptizing, which they wouldn't have agreed with that. They would have said, no, we're giving the first real baptism. But following those, the, 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 the martyrdom of their leaders, the Anabaptist movement took some horrible turns and produced some really strange offshoots. Uh, I don't think any of them were biblical. Some of them uh, stemmed from just strange and wacky and mystical, what we would consider almost charismatic, all the way to violent and led to great destruction. That's the Anabaptists. We don't come from them. But keep that in mind, the Anabaptists. That was, again, 1525 into the 1530s. Meanwhile, back in England, King Henry VIII has decided he wants to divorce his wife, Catherine of Aragon. Remember, church-state relations. He's a king. He wants to divorce his wife, but he has to listen to the pope of the church, the head of the church. And the pope would not concede to his divorce. He, wouldn't, he didn't believe that it was a valid divorce. And so, King Henry says, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll just break from the church. And so he leaves, separates the monarchy from the church, or from the Roman Catholic Church, and establishes himself as head of the church in England. Now he is still, as far as his beliefs, a staunch Roman Catholic in faith, but now the Church of England has separated from the Roman Catholic Church. That's why King Henry is so important. Because there, that break happened, and so now we have the Church of England, and we have the Roman Catholic Church. In 1547, King Henry died, and King Edward VI is crowned King of England. Now, Edward is a devout Protestant. So now England, the Church of England, has a head of the church who is a Protestant in his beliefs, and so he comes in and he establishes that now the Church of England may have English worship services rather than just in Latin so that now the common people can listen and pay attention in the worship services. And King Edward begins to send out preachers. He has preachers he sends out to preach the Protestant gospel message. In 1549, this is 
two years later. The Church of England publishes the Book of Common Prayer, which was basically a liturgical guide where the Church of England said, this is how you'll do church in our churches. Remember, they're separate from Roman Catholicism, but they still have a king who's the head of the church, and they still establish, here's the book, here's what you do in our churches. And so they publish the Book of Common Prayer. Remember, King Edward is sending out these preachers, and in 1551, a man by the name of John... Knox becomes a chaplain or, or the chaplain to King Edward VI of England. Knox is from Scotland. He becomes chaplain to King Edward of England. And now Knox begins to travel as one of these sent out preachers to preach this Protestant gospel. But Knox also preaches not just the Protestant doctrine. Knox begins to preach on this idea of the purification of the church. We need to purify the church of England of all of its idolatry. Knox wants a pure church. That's his mindset. In 1553, Edward VI dies. And who is crowned after Edward? Bloody Mary comes to the throne. Bloody Mary is crowned Queen of England, head of the Church of England. Again, now she's a staunch Roman Catholic. Remember, we went from a Catholic to a Protestant. Now we're back to a Roman Catholic. And why is she called Bloody Mary? Because she killed a lot of people, a lot of Protestants, had them martyred. And so during the, the reign of Bloody Mary, those seeking to reform the Church of England, they flee. The, the, the island, remember on an island, they flee the island and go elsewhere. And John Knox ends up in a city called Geneva. Not directly, but eventually ends up in a city called Geneva and sits under a pastor in Geneva whose name is John Calvin. And Knox begins to be influenced and taught through the teaching of John Calvin. In 1558, five years later, Bloody Mary dies. Now that she's gone, all the refugees are returning back to England, their home. And many of them, after they had left, they had sat under good, reformed teaching. Remember, the Reformation was taking place in the continent of Europe under these pastors and theologians. And so they have sat under good, solid, reformed, what they would have re referred to as Calvinistic, or we might call Calvinistic teaching. Now they come back to England, the Church of England, and what do they want to do except continue to purify the church? Get rid of this idolatry. Elizabeth I is crowned the Queen of England. Now Elizabeth I was sort of a middle ground. We went from a Catholic to a Protestant to a Catholic. And now we're back to Elizabeth I who just sort of wants to keep the peace. She's sort of a middle ground. So she keeps Edward's reforms. They can still have worship services in English. English. But she doesn't go any further. She just stops it there with what Edward had established. In 1559, the Act of Uniformity passed. And so now in England, attendance in the Church of England is mandated by law. You must be at the worship service. Here's our Book of Common Prayer. You must have worship like this. So it's good that they get English worship, but it's governed by the church. You must do what we say. You must do it this way. And if you don't go to church, you're in trouble. That's the Act of Uniformity, 1558. And so, during this time, many continue to fight for reforms within the church. We got to reform. This is their mindset. We want to reform this Church of England. But some are beginning to realize it's not going to work. If we want to reform, we've got to do something outside of this state church. Again, the goal is to purify this church, the Church of England, the state church, or create a new pure church where sound doctrine is paired with practical biblical piety. They want to purify the church. Now, what do you think a uh, negative derogatory name these people received? Puritans. They were called Puritans because they wanted to purify the church, rid the church of its idolatry, and get back to simple Bible teaching and actual living out biblical 
piety. That's in England. Meanwhile, in Scotland, in 1566, Queen Mary of Scots, or Mary Queen of Scots, gives birth to James the Sixth. This is back in Scotland, and John Knox is there, and he makes sure that this young king, James, is raised according to Protestant, Calvinistic, Presbyterian beliefs. That's 1566. In 1567, King James VI becomes the king of Scotland at one year old. Now, obviously, he doesn't exercise authority, but he is the king of Scotland. In 1603, Elizabeth I of England dies, and James VI of Scotland becomes King James I of England, Scotland, and Ireland. Again, he was raised Protestant, Calvinistic, Presbyterian, and so the Puritans... Puritan leaders begin to try to get James to continue to push the reform. But James likes being king with a subservient church rather than having a church that comes and holds the king accountable. And so an example of this ideology, in other words, King James did not want Presbyterianism. He wanted to do what he wanted to do. He wanted to be king and he wanted the church to obey him. One of the outworkings of this, one of God's blessings from this, was the production of the King James Bible. And we, we learned that the Geneva Bible was littered with notes, study notes from people who sat under Calvin's preaching that referred to Christ as the head of the church. Christ is king and the national king must submit to Christ as king. James didn't like that, and so he commissioned a translation of the English Bible without those notes. Um, so that was James as he takes over in England, Scotland, and Ireland in 1603. Meanwhile, in London, a man named Henry Jacobs breaks from the Church of England. And he forms what was called a separatist church. They decided we're not going to reform the Church of England anymore. We're going to start our own church. And he forms a separatist church in London because he could not in good conscience remain with the Church of England. So here we have the same Puritan mindset, Puritanical, Calvinistic doctrine with this separatist mentality. No state church. We want a real separate church church. And this man, Henry Jacobs, begins, like many of the reformers, begin to wrestle with the idea of baptism, primarily the proper administrators of baptism. Again, they're coming out of the Roman Catholic Church or they're coming out of the Church of England. Can these, what, what these separatists believe to be false churches, can they adequately administer the sacrament of baptism? And so, he establishes this church, Henry Jacobs, and that church, if you want to study more history on this, is named for its first three pastors in succession. It's called the Jacobs Lathrop Jesse Church, named for their first three pastors. Very important church, 1616. Now again, in order to situate ourselves in the, the overall context of history, meanwhile in America in 1620, the Puritans established the Plymouth Colony in America. So there are already Puritans who are saying, we're out of here, we're going somewhere else. Back in England in 1625, King James I dies, and Charles I is crowned King of England. And Charles is opposed to any and all reform. No more reform. All the while... Amongst the common people, the scriptures are being read, tracts and literature are being printed and, and mass produced and, and disseminated and spread. The doctrines of scripture are being checked and compared with traditions or traditions are being compared with scripture. And just like in the Swiss Reformation of Zwingli, the issue of baptism, proper 
mode, proper recipients, proper administrators. This is all being questioned because they've come out of this church who, I believe, the, the concept of infant baptism was established to keep people in the church. You're born here, you're baptized here, this is where you belong, and it develops a church that is not every nation and tribe, but these people born here, you're going to stay here. And so now they're all beginning to question this idea of the proper administrators of baptism. If a person was baptized by the Roman Catholic Church, was that a legitimate baptism? If a person was baptized by the Church of England, was that a legitimate baptism? And so all of this stuff is, is being questioned, wrestled with in the Scriptures. That was um, 1625 when James died and Charles was crowned. Meanwhile, in London, we come back to the Jacob's Lathrop Jesse Church. And just like everybody in this time period, or a lot of churches in this time period, this church is still immersed in the debate over a legitimate baptism. A small group leaves from this church determining they've decided the Church of England is not the proper administrator of baptism. And so they separate. Now they do not yet believe in believer's baptism, but what they do know is that the Church of England is not a true church, and so it cannot properly administer baptism. That's 1633. In 1638, a man in, back in the Jacob's Lathrop Jesse Church named John Spilsbury begins discussions over another issue regarding baptism. Now it's not the proper administrators, it's the proper recipients. Who can receive baptism? Who should be baptized? And Spilsbury takes a group and separates over the conviction that only believers are to be the recipients of baptism. So you're following the line, you've got the Church of England, and then you've got the Puritans who want to purify, and then you've got the separatists who say, no, we're done, and then you've got those who believe that that baptism was not a legitimate baptism, and now you come all the way down to another line who says, not only was that not a legitimate baptism, but those who were baptized were not legitimate recipients of baptism. And so they are practicing um, or, or espousing believer's baptism, but they're doing it by what is called effusion. Who, who knows what effusion is? Effusion? Effusion? Not a mist, no, not a squirt bottle. Effusion? No. It was the wiping of the face with a rag. The picture of wiping, being baptized, wiping your sins away. And so they believed in a believer's baptism, but they only did it by the wiping of the face. In 1640, back in the Jacob's Lathrop Jesse Church, Henry Jesse, who's the third pastor of that church, continues discussions over proper baptism, its administrators and recipients. They had two groups that would gather on, uh, I believe it was on Friday nights. They would gather, and they had to gather in two separate groups because of persecution. They couldn't have a huge, large group together. And so they would gather, and they would just have little discussions, biblical, doctrinal um, discussions like we often have. Just wrestle with things. And during that time, a man from one group named Richard Blunt is sent to Holland to just observe how some of the Anabaptists there were practicing believers' baptism. What were they doing? That's in 1640, Richard Blunt. Meanwhile, in Scotland, in 1640, the Scottish Parliament adopts a national covenant making Protestantism and Presbyterianism the law of the land. So the Scottish reform was, was real reform. Um, it, it came quickly. It settled in. It was the law of the land. We're Protestants. That Church of Scotland eventually became what we know, we know as Presbyterianism. Um, all man-made worship is now illegal in Scotland. And Scotland continues to pressure England to join in the reform. And so King Charles, remember he's king in England, he goes to war with these Scottish covenanters. If you ever hear of that title, Covenanters, that is these Scottish reformers who believed in um, Protestant doctrines and the reform of the church. So King Charles has now started a war with them. 
this war gets expensive and he's running out of money. And remember, he's not an absolute monarch. He can't just do whatever he pleases. And so he has to call Parliament into session to approve more money being spent on this war. So he calls Parliament. Well, by this time, many of them, if not most of them, are sympathetic to the Puritan cause and Puritan doctrines. And so he just dismisses them very quickly. This is called the short Parliament. He calls them, he realizes what they are, gets rid of them. Then he calls another Parliament for the same purpose. He needs money. These men have the same sympathies. They are sympathetic to the Puritan cause and Puritan doctrine. But they just refuse to leave session. They come in and they say, you can't tell us to leave session or Parliament. And so they end up staying in session for around 20 years. That's called the Long Parliament. And during that time, the English parliamentary forces join forces with the Scottish Covenanter forces to fight against King Charles I. So now you've got not only war with another land, but war within that own nation. A civil war uh, breaks out against Charles I. Remember Richard Blunt. He had went to Scotland in 1640, or in Holland, went to Holland in 1640 to observe the practice of believers' baptism. He comes back after a year, teaches his church. And in January, remember this is London, in January, 55 people are baptized by total immersion and they establish a church with Reformed, Puritan, Separatist beliefs as well as the belief in believers' baptism by immersion. From all outward appearances, it looks like the only connection that these Baptists have with the Anabaptists is that he went there to see how they did it. But anybody who says that modern Baptists come from Anabaptists have not studied the history because that's not so. The Anabaptists, again, they were lost in, in a lot of bad doctrine. They were not a part of the, the, uh, the Reformed, Protestant, Puritan, uh, Separatist mindset. And so, 55 people are baptized by total immersion in that church, 1642. Now during this time, Puritanism in England had grown quite popular because Calvinism was being equated with a decentralized government. And that's in contrast with an absolute monarchy. If you want to keep the king in check, well, you can't give in to an absolute monarch. And so they just equate Calvinism and Puritanism with, with a revolt against that absolute monarchy. Puritans are being identified with Parliament over against the absolute monarch. Well, King Charles I wants to be that absolute monarch. He wants everybody to do exactly what he says. And so he begins to impose stricter worship practices. He reinstitutes Roman vestments for priests and pastors. He reinstitutes a book of prayer. He publishes or, or he pushes Arminian theology into the churches. And he threatens the lives of Puritans. King Charles wants nothing to do with Puritanism, Protestantism, or any type of reform. And so he's feeding this into the Church of England. And if you watch that church history set back there, Robert Godfrey gives a good story of a, a little old lady who was sitting, I believe it was a church in Scotland, when a Church of England uh, priest or... Uh, Bishop comes to preach and he's wearing the Roman vestments and he begins to preach in the Roman vestments and she picks her chair up and chucks it at him and says, and that's what I'm saying, the Scottish reformers were, was, they, they were, they were serious. They were at times violent. They would go to war. They, were, they would not have it. And so this, this old lady chunks, chucks a chair at the bishop. But King Charles is pushing this, uh, the, the anti-reform we could call it. That's, between or around the time of 1642. And so in 1643, English Parliament, still in session, calls for an assembly of what they called divines. They called pastors, lecturers, theologians, religious, scholastics. They called them divines. 
These were the men who spent their lives devoted to the study and the teaching and the preaching of the Scriptures and applying them. And so they, the Parliament calls this assembly of divines to meet in Westminster Abbey to settle matters regarding biblical doctrine, church government, and worship practices. Let's get all of the smartest men we can get together and let's settle what is believed or what, what is biblical. These divines meet for approximately five years. They started with the 39 articles of the Church of England. That was that confession of faith. And they begin to compare everything that's in it to the Word of God. Everything. Within those 39 articles, they were required to hold to the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. So there's that, that thin red line of God's honest truth was, was settled there within the 39 Articles of England, as these divines begin to meet, they realize that is the historic Orthodox Christian faith, and, and they begin to work with that. The Scots, who were a part of that assembly, desired, desired a whole new confession. Just start completely from scratch. Just keep the Apostles' Creed, the Athanasian Creed, and the, um, the Nicene Creed. So these divines meet to clarify the line. Again, they're, they're getting out their spray can and they're spraying and they want to find that line of what we called last week God's honest truth. What does the Bible say about doctrine? What do the Scriptures teach about church government? What do the Scriptures teach about worship practices? And so they produce the Westminster Confession of Faith the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Longer Catechism, and the Directory for Public Worship. In other words, here's what we believe and here's how it's going to be carried out in worship. Now the Church of Scotland, remember the Scots, they're pushing for it. They, they want this reform. And so they adopt these documents, Westminster Confession of Faith, Shorter Catechism, Longer Catechism, Directory for Public Worship. The Church of England whose parliament had called this assembly, they never adopt this documentation. Still to this day, the Church of England is not... Um, they do not hold to the, the, the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Catechisms or the Directory for Public Worship because by this time, uh, Charles had died and a man named Oliver Cromwell had taken over, a military leader, and he was a Congregationalist. He was not a Presbyterian. And so he didn't allow the the Church of England to adopt those documents. Meanwhile, the civil war outside continues and in, within Cromwell's armies, these military battalions that are going out in war, little independent churches begin to sprout up of soldiers. And some of those were started by what were called particular Baptists. These men who believed in these Protestant, Reformed, Calvinistic, Puritan, Separatist beliefs. But even back in this time, Baptists were severely evangelistic. Plant a church, send out men, plant a church, start an association over and over, constantly training up and sending out preachers. And so these preachers are going out into the military. These little churches begin to sprout up within Cromwell's armies. That's around 1643, some, sometime in that era, or that year, time period. In 1644, seven churches in London, word has gotten out that they're dunking people down in the water. The word begins to spread. We've got some of those weird, wacky, destructive, troublesome Anabaptists back in town. We can see who they are. Look what they're doing. They're throwing people in the water. These seven churches want the world to know, no, 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 no. We're not Anabaptists. They want to clarify the line from their perspective. They want everybody to know that they are aligned with Calvinistic, Puritan, separatism that was found in the Protestant movement. And also they want to clarify why they are doing baptism differently. In other, in other words, their goal was to establish solidarity with their brethren, with orthodoxy, 
while at the same time explain some of their differences. And so they produce the 1644 London Baptist Confession of Faith. We would call this the first London Baptist Confession. Now I want to read to you the introduction and the conclusion to that confession. This is how they began. Listen to the, the demeanor of this confession. A confession of faith of seven congregations or churches of Christ in London, which are commonly but unjustly called Anabaptists, published for the vindication of the truth and information of the ignorant, likewise for the taking off those aspersions which are frequently both in pulpit and in print unjustly cast upon them. So not only are people preaching, these are wacky Anabaptists, they are publishing literature saying stay away from them, the, the Anabaptists are back. And they weren't, they're saying no, 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 no. That's not, that's not who we are. And here is the conclusion to their confession. Thus we desire to give unto Christ that which is His, and unto all lawful authority that which is their due, and to owe nothing to any man but love, to live quietly and peaceably, as it becometh saints, endeavoring in all things to keep a good conscience, and to do unto every man of what judgment soever, as he or as we would they should do unto us, that as our practice is, so it may prove us to a conscionable, quiet, or it probably should be, prove us to be a conscionable, quiet, and harmless people. No ways dangerous or troublesome to human society because the Anabaptists had started some destructive, um, did some destructive things. And to labor and work with our hands that we may not be chargeable to any, but to give to him that needeth both friends and enemies, accounting it more excellent to give than to receive. Also we confess that we know in part and that we are ignorant of many things which we desire to seek and know. Listen to this. And if any do show us that friendly part to show us from the Word of God that we see not, we shall have cause to be thankful to God to them. So they're saying, we confess we don't know everything. And if someone would come and help us, we would thank God to be taught of the Scriptures. But if any man shall impose upon us anything that we see not to be commanded by our Lord Jesus Christ, we should in His strength rather embrace all reproaches and tortures of men, to be stripped of all outward comforts, and if it were possible to die a thousand deaths rather than to do anything against the least tittle of the truth of God or against the light of our own consciences. If any shall call what we have said heresy, then do we with the apostle acknowledge that after the way they call heresy, Worship we the God of our fathers, disclaiming all heresy, rightly so called, because they are against Christ, and to be steadfast and immovable, and immovable, always abounding in obedience to Christ, as knowing our labor shall not be in vain in the Lord. So that was the introduction and the conclusion to that first London Baptist Confession. Now in 1658, the Congregationalists in London, Presbyterians believe that there are local churches, and then all of the local churches or in an area will be a part of a, a bigger church. Um, would that be a presbytery or a session? A presbytery? And then, and then presbyteries will be under a session. So they believed in this hierarchy. So like a, an individual local church was not autonomous of itself. They had to submit to those above them. There was a hierarchy of leadership. Well, the Congregationalists didn't believe in that Presbyterian rule. They believed local congregations are answerable to themselves. And so, they're in London. They take the Westminster Confession of Faith and they make revisions based on their belief in, belief in independent local congregations rather than Presbyterian policy and they produce what is called the Savoy or Savoy Declaration. This was their historic Orthodox Christianity with Calvinistic theology. The difference was they added a chapter on congregational polity rather than Presbyterian church structure. So there's the Savoy Declaration. In 1660, King Charles II is crowned King of England. By this time, it is believed that there are around 131 Baptist churches. Local associations are immediately formed. Able men are immediately sent out to preach, to plant churches, and establish more associations. They believed wholeheartedly 
in the autonomy of the local church, but in the, the, almost the necessity of associational work, churches, working with churches. So this is happening during the reign of King Charles. The Act of Uniformity is enacted making all nonconformist worship services illegal. Any, a nonconformist would be a Puritan, a separatist, anybody who didn't agree with the Church of England. If you had a worship service, you were breaking the law. And at that time, or during that time, over 2,000 Puritan pastors are ejected from their pulpits. They leave. They're cast out. And what do they do except begin to gather people in barns and in homes and in the woods and in fields at the risk of imprisonment to preach the gospel? John Bunyan was one of those pastors. He was actually arrested before this, but um, was imprisoned during this time. And, and they told him, I think it was 12 or 13 years, he was in prison with his family on the outside. And they told him, all you have to do, Bunyan, is stop preaching. And we'll open the gate and you walk out today. Back to your home, your children, your blind daughter. And he said, if you let me out today, I'll be preaching tomorrow. And so he sat in prison. So, they're cast out of their churches. In 1677... A congregation of particular Baptists, they're called particular Baptists because they believed in particular redemption, what is called limited atonement. They believed the historic doctrine that Christ died for His elect, as opposed to general Baptists who did not believe in that doctrine. They were a divergence from historic orthodoxy. But these are called particular Baptists because they believed in particular redemption. And a congregation, they do decide to do what the Congregationalists have done. Namely, they take the Westminster Confession of Faith. They want to rework it to show their differences, but also show as much as possible their solidarity with the historic Christian teaching and with their Protestant brothers. And so the product was a confession that was printed and circulated in this time of great persecution amongst other Baptist churches. They took the Westminster Confession of Faith, they, the chapter that was added by the Savoy Declaration, and they um, reworked uh, some of the language with regard to the covenant and, and things of that nature. But they produced the second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Most of uh, the guys who study this believe that this document was produced by a church called the Petty France Church. Nobody knows for sure who were the signatories of it, but the elders in that church were men by the name of Nehemiah Cox and William Collins. And so, again, the church is, is sort of underground, hidden. But they produced this confession and they began to have it printed and sent out amongst other Baptist churches. 1677 to 1689, perhaps the worst years of persecution for nonconformists. But then in 1689, the Act of Toleration is passed by King William and Queen Mary, which allows nonconformist meetings to take place as long as they register their meetings um, and their churches. 1689, all of a sudden, you can come out in the open. And it is almost as if literally Baptists, particular Baptists, emerge from the woods and the fields and the barns and private homes and they call a general assembly from September 3rd to the 11th to meet and discuss the confession that had already made its way around all of these churches in the region. It was then that they adopted as the official confession of the Reformed, Protestant, Calvinistic, Puritan, Separatist, Credo-Baptists. That'd be for a good church sign, wouldn't it? The Second London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689. Now, it was first published in 1677. It was not published in 1689 at all. Um, but we still call it that because that's when the churches um, came together to establish it as the Confession of Faith for that group of Baptists rooted in the English Reformation and English Protestantism. And James Renahan says, um, with probably a little bit of bias, that that confession was the last great Reformation confession in the English language. In 1707, the Philadelphia Association is formed in America. In 1742, they adopt the 1689 confession, call it, calling it the Philadelphia Confession of Faith. They add 
two sections with regard to the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs in worship and the laying on of hands. There was a big split in, in early Reformed Baptist churches with regard to whether or not we're supposed to sing in public worship. Many believed we don't sing when we come together. Others believed we do sing when we come together. And so there was a rift. Some of them would come together and have worship. And then there would be a time where those could leave who didn't believe in singing while everybody else would wait for them to leave. And then they would sing. So that, that probably led to that establishing of that section. And then they believed in the laying on of hands as an ordinance, just like baptism and the Lord's Supper. Um, and so they added those into that Philadelphia Confession. So the Philadelphia Confession is not the exact same as the London Baptist Confession, but it's it, very similar. Uh, from that point, then, Baptists in America begin to simplify confessions for broader use. You have the New Hampshire Confession, uh, the Baptist Faith and Message. Um, the Baptist Faith and Mes Message, which is the Southern Baptist Convention uses, was, it's different now than it was when it was originally established or originally drafted. These confessions were more denominational than they were church. So the Baptist faith and message works great for the Southern Baptist Convention because you can have churches like, uh, you name your conservative Southern Baptist church, and you can have Elevation Church, and you can have New Spring Church. I mean, anybody can get in under that confession of faith. It's meant to be wide and broad denominational so that pretty much anybody can be in and nobody can get kicked out. I have yet to figure out how you can get removed from the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, and I've, I've sort of inquired. Um, so that, that the, the confessions from that point begin to, rather than getting broader and broader and more specific, uh, I mean, yeah, longer and more specific, they actually get, begin to get shorter and shorter and shorter and less specific to allow for associ associationalism with uh, less specific beliefs. And so the London Baptist Confession, again, is the last great Reformation confession in English that is detailed and specific enough that a local church can take it and use it as their confession. And it, and it works as a local church confession. Um, if we, had every, if we had a church membership where we said all you have to do is believe the Baptist faith and message, then we could have a person over here speaking in tongues and casting out spirits and demons and somebody over here doing something completely different and we would have to allow it. We couldn't argue with it because th those confessions are broad. So, can you see how those particular Baptists and our, our forefathers, their goal was to find the line of truth. Can you see that? That was their goal. It wasn't to start anything new. It wasn't to be... They simply were going to the Scriptures like everybody else. I would say, again, with a little bias, I think they went to the Scriptures for a little longer than everybody else. The reform happened. Luther started his reforms, and then Calvin started his reforms. Presbyterians would say, we're not reformed. We would say, you're not reformed enough. Because we, they just kept going. They kept wrestling with these, these issues. So that's the history of our confession. Are there any questions? 59 minutes, 12 seconds. 180 years of history. Any questions, confusions, comments? All right. Next week, we'll look at an outline. We will outline the confession to get a, a good picture in our mind of how it's written and structured. We'll understand it. The week after that, I'll be preaching at the prison, and so we're going to have a, a presentation on the, um, the mindset, the presupposition beneath why the confession starts with the Scriptures. Is that a good explanation? Will that work? Austin's going to do that for us. He should have done this for us. But, um, and, then we'll, and then after that, we will return to... Um, we'll, we'll begin to walk through our confession Let's pray. Lord, we do confess and believe that your works are great. Great are the works of the Lord and studied by all who delight in them. We can see your hand working throughout history, guiding men to wrestle with the scriptures. And we thank you and we praise you for that, Lord. I pray that we wouldn't take for granted the history that has brought us to where we are. God, I pray that we would not use these things as a battering ram to 
to further divide ourselves from brothers and sisters in Christ, but rather use them as, as they were intended, as ways to um, establish uniformity and, and brotherhood and, and solidarity with our brothers and sisters. Christ, we want to see your church built and strengthened and, and not divided, not fractured. But we do have convictions that we believe are rooted in the Scriptures. And so we thank you for your works, Lord. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you would continue in your providence to work intimately in the details of all of your churches. We thank you for continuing to walk in the midst of the lampstands. We ask that you would not remove your, uh, the lampstand from this church, that you would not remove your presence from us, but that you would continue with us, that you would use this church and other churches in this area as a catalyst for more reform. God, we seek revival in this land. We ask that you would not be finished with the United States of America, that the, the, the history books would not be closed on revival in America, but that they would just be opened up and new stories could be told of how God used the Scriptures and His churches and His people to revive a nation. Please, Lord, allow us to take part in something so great. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.